Advisory. This episode may have some content that may not be suitable for younger listeners or sensitive audience members. Bernstein is a proven dynamic trial lawyer, winning major appellate cases in her 30 years of practicing law. She's been named to Georgia's super lawyer list since 2008, and also Georgia Trent Magazine Legal Elite, and received national and state awards for her client advocacy and commitment to justice. It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Hi, this is B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Today's Law Talk is a little bit more personal for me, and hopefully it will, all of you listening, um, learn something new about what's really behind when you hear that someone has gone to prison and what is prison like, not a movie, not an exaggerated look that some people may take or not take. It may be worse. It may be better. But from someone who's lived it, someone who I know, who y'all are going to have to trust me on this one, um, we're not going to identify by name. We're going to use the letter J, so I'll be referring to him as J. J, welcome to Law Talk with BJ. Thank you. Well, I want to start at the beginning when you were 20 years old, and again, to everybody here, Um, We're not going into the details of the offense or what happened at trial other than to say there was a trial and you were convicted and you were sentenced to 10 years in prison and you served those 10 years in prison. Every last one of them. And you first go to jail at 20 and you're actually at a county facility because it's pre-trial. You're you're incarcerated pre-trial. Right. So let's I want to go back there first. Um, That's not prison. That's mm-hmm. a county facility. You had never been there before. What was it like at the beginning of that time in the county awaiting trial? Well, in the beginning, it wasn't real. Like, I didn't really, um, I thought I'd be going home, like, really soon. Like, I didn't expect to stay there very long. You thought that you were going to get a bond and you'd be able to get out and then deal with the consequences right. next. So you, Which... I'm assuming you saw a lot of different people going in and out of the jail quick, and you thought you'd be like them. Exactly. Initially, when the reality set in that I was going to sit there for a while, my experience was we were locked down 20 hours a day. So you would come out for an hour in the morning, an hour in like the afternoon, and then two hours in the evening. So when you say you're locked down, what kind of room are you in that you're locked in? Uh, it's a it's a two-man cell. Probably, um, I would say, 12 by 12. It's cold. And that was intentional because cold at a lot of facilities is used to subdue the population to try to make sure there aren't fights and things going on. Right, right. And um, so, I mean, you have a a bunk. There's a bottom and top bunk. And uh, you're not allowed to, like, get under the blanket until about lockdown, which is like 10 o'clock. You know, you had these jumpsuits, so you would uh, take a a bath towel and put it under the jumpsuit to try to, like, stay warm. Wow. Yeah. 
And did you have trouble? I mean, could you sleep at the beginning? Could you get any rest at all? Honestly, in the beginning, no. And when you finally, when I finally did go to sleep and wake up, it was sobering because during the sleep, you kind of forget about the, the ordeal. Then when you wake up, there's just this stark reality of where you are initially. But I was there 18 months. So during the, during the time, I, the, the reality of it set in. At first, it was a, a real adjustment. When, in terms of um, the time you're around other people at, the, at a county facility, um, a pretrial facility, were there difficult relationships that you had to deal with in terms of getting along with the other inmates? And um, how frequently would you get a new roommate? Or was there any rhythm to that at all? There, there was no rhythm to that. So, you know, I, I mentioned before that you were you, what, what they call free time. So an hour in the morning, hour in the afternoon, and then two hours in the evening. So when you were out in the, in the day room, you could kind of like control who you were around, but you can't in that two-man cell. So that was just the luck of the draw, whether you got someone who you were got along with or were compatible with. And for me, it was hit or miss. So I've had some roommates that I got along with very well and uh, some that I didn't, to say the least. In that 18-month period at the pretrial facility, was there any sort of organization of gangs or any sort of thing that, like, you hear about that way in the prison part? We'll get there. Mm -hmm. But was there anything that organized, or is it because of the nature of people going in and out um, that never happens in the same way. I would say not so much. So I think there were maybe this Asian gang that was there. A couple of them were charged with murder, but they kind of like spread them out into different pods. Uh, but most of the everyone was, you know, transient. I would say the people like me who had serious offenses and were there for a significant amount of time where we were in the minority. What about... The food that at that point, I mean, there's a big difference. Clearly, you're not getting home cooking or going out with right. your friends. Is that an adjustment? What What is that like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you have the option to get commissary. They do feed you three three times a day, and even if you have never been to prison, I, I would think anyone would know that is not that appetizing, and it's not that much either. So if you have a really healthy appetite. Uh, even the portions that they serve aren't that great. So if if you don't have commissary to, um, you know, supplement what they feed you there, then there'll be some hungry, hungry nights. Did you have any direct problems in that 18-month period pre-trial that stand out that it, there was something violent, there was something scary, something out of the usual, of uh, the rhythm that you've talked about being in right now um only two things come to mind is uh one when my roommate he didn't make commissary and uh I knew that he was uh we had these little boxes that we you know keep our personal belongings in and I knew that he was uh you know stealing out of my box and you know contrary to everyone else like I Violence was pretty much the last thing that I resorted to. So, I, you know, I confronted him and, you know, I told him, hey, I, listen, I know that you're, you know, you're stealing from me. Um, if it happens again, basically, you know, there'll be consequences. And he claimed that he didn't. And I said, well, you know, we're, we're not arguing that point. I'm just saying if it happens again, then 
it did happen again and this time I didn't confront him verbally um there was there was a physical altercation and um I got sent to solitary confinement and I was there 20 days wow um it's even colder there and you you only go out for 1 hour a day and anytime you leave the cell like to take a shower you have to turn around be handcuffed and escort it to the shower when you get to the shower you extend your handcuffed hands out and they take them off you shower and then the same process to go back to your cell so you're there you go to trial and the jury finds you guilty yes and then you move into the state system and i think we'll talk about it but how many facilities total were you at once you moved into the state system, because you're 18 months at this uh, pretrial facility, mm-hmm. and then you serve all 10, you were, had a 10-year sentence, and you serve the rest of it in the state prison system. How many places were you at? I think it was at five different facilities. What goes through your mind now when you look back and think about the difference from the pretrial time to actually having been convicted and going to a, your, the first prison which you went to? The whole time that I was in um, pretrial, I thought I was going to get out. I never was in the mind state of I'm going to serve 10 years in prison. So once I was convicted, I still, that didn't, um, my optimism didn't wane. I had a, you know, motion for new trial hearing as an option. And also, you know, if that didn't work out, you know, there was the appellate courts. But the reality of going to prison set in. And, you know, I had never been, I've heard what it was like. And to be honest, I was more, you know, the the stories I heard were horrendous, but I was more, I guess, scared of doing 10 years of confinement than whatever I would experience in prison. So, you know, whatever road I had to cross or whatever experience that I had, you know, while I was in prison, I deal with it as, as it came along. But the one thing I I felt at the time that I could not deal with was um, 10 years of confinement. So when you get there, how do they treat you? I mean, how are you shown? What are the differences? I guess that's okay. a better so, question. So what I'll are take the differences? You, I'll take you to um, the, the, the night that they come and tell you that you're, you know, you're being transferred. So they come out, all, all the people that have been um, convicted and sentenced, they call it shipping. You know, it's it's shipping night. So um, you are shackled, um, your feet are shackled, and then you are um, handcuffed to someone, you know, in tandem. So you're, you get on this bus, um, it says the Department of Corrections, and you, you shuffle on the bus because, you know, you're, the chains are, are short. So you take these little short shuffle steps. So it was, it was a long long bus ride. Um, I can't remember everything that I thought about, but I do remember it being very sunny when we, um, when I pulled into, um, diagnostic classification and there are these, this fence, this gate that opens. And one thing that really, uh, stuck out to me was there's all this razor wire. The reflection of the sun is just glistening off this razor wire. It was just very ominous and it was two gates. So it was like, uh, one gate opens up, and then the bus goes through. It passes through. That gate closes. And then another gate opens up, and um, 
once we got to diagnostics, you had all of these like correction officers yelling at you, telling you, you know, the way you address them is, sir, yes, sir, ma'am, no, ma'am. And um, first thing you do is you take off your jail jumpsuit. They make you strip naked. And the closest person in front of you is probably six inches in front. And then the closest person is six inches behind you. And you're like, naked so you they give you this uh de-licer you rub it in your hair under your arms and your crotch and then you you know you go in the shower and wash it off and then they shave your head you know you sit down and then they shave your head bald then you know you go through this kind of like orientation and they tell you the rules and regulations and um issue you your you know state boots and your state-issued jumpsuit. So that that's just the diagnostic process. And it reminded me of um, cattle because, you know, they do these tests, like, and also, like, whenever, whenever, you're, whenever you move, especially, like, going to, like, lunch, it's just herds of people going to lunch with controlled movement. And you literally have, like, maybe, like, five to eight minutes to eat because... And that's what I mean by cattle is like you have this row of tables. And when the correction officer says time to go, like it's literally time to go. So some people, if you were like a slow eater, you were like eating your food on the way to like, you know, put your tray away. For me, it was it was just very demoralizing. One example that would give a person a reference point is if you see famous rich people live their life like they have all this money and they travel, you know, they have expensive cars and houses and well, just the regular average Joe is like that when you're when you're in prison. Like it's like uh, the fact that you're able to come and go as you want and choose what you want to dress and choose what you what you want to eat. All that was taken away. Yeah, all that was taken away. So, like, those, like, things that are just so, I guess, normal and that you take for granted, that's the Ferrari and the traveling to Nice. You know what I mean? Like, um, A trip to McDonald's would be like going to the the finest restaurant in Paris. Right, exactly. What's going through your mind? I mean, you're describing this, but, but do you, has, is it any way that you could get your arm around that it's going to be this way for a long time? Um, I did not feel that way until I got a letter from the Georgia Court of Appeals saying that they, that they denied my appeal. And this was probably about three or four years into my sentence. I got a letter saying that my, um, was it certiorari? Certiorari was denied. Yeah. Um, the Georgia Supreme Court wouldn't review it. Right. So then that's when I was like, okay, well, and before I was, I won't say that I was very religious, but I was a, a Christian, I guess a cultural Christian. And when this ordeal happened, I became very uh, religious. And, you know, in retrospect, it was more or less something to hold on to for, you know, for hope. And when I got that letter um, denying my, that Latin word, it it was sort of like, I became very honest with myself and I was like, okay, so I'm going to be, I'm going to do this time. And my mind was like, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to get out. And 
my thoughts shifted to, okay, you're going to do this and you're going to be 30 years old when you get out. What can you do now? You know, you have some major strikes against you. What can you do now to make your transition into society easier? And that's where my mind took place then. So before, that never crossed my mind. You weren't looking that far ahead. No. So there were a lot of things that people were indulging in. Other inmates. Other inmates. As in contraband, yeah, drugs. Contraband, drugs, tattoos. So I knew, I knew that I wanted a, a better life for myself when I was released. Because when you're in there, you see people who have been in prison like multiple times. And, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I felt I was different from everybody in there because they fully immersed themselves into the prison culture or the, you know, the street culture. I said I wasn't going to get any tattoos. Like I read everything that I could get my hands on. None of it was like fixed. Only I, I developed this obsession with Anne Rice. Um, and my mom would send me whatever I asked for. So everything else was like on like psychology. I read The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because I felt like, you know, no one's going to hire me, so I'm going to have to be an entrepreneur. What? But And I hear what you're saying, that you knew that about yourself, but you're mm-hmm. still having to deal with these people around you who, as you said, were doing drugs, there's mm-hmm. violence. Right. How did you interact with them and keep yourself safe, or could you keep yourself safe? Well, yes. You know, like, for the most part, if you didn't indulge in certain activity, like one of the things was gambling. That was probably the number one thing that caused a lot of fights and and confrontations. You know, I'd never gambled. And I can't say that that was like a choice. I never just never had an interest in it. But people liked me. So I really had no issues. You can fall into two categories, like prey or, or predator. I don't think anyone perceived me as like prey. So no one really mess with me because I would, if I had to, then, you know, I would stand up for myself. So in other words, that didn't happen to you. Did you see it happen to other people? You're talking about prey. Oh, absolutely. And and, and who was a candidate for prey? Uh, usually smaller, younger guys who you can see the fear in their eyes. And, you know, before I got there, I used to hear about rape in prison. I never saw a witness that it was the, what I saw was more manipulative you know, like they would take like a, a young guy who's scared and act like his protector and like give him, if he didn't have commissary, they would give him commissary. And one thing that was rampant is uh, masturbating to the female officers. So that, that was like a sport. So they would get the guys to do that with them, you know, expose themselves to each other. And it was just like a very manipulative way into getting them to uh you know what they, what they call is turn them out so i saw a, a lot of that and i never had you know homosexuality too very aware of it but my concept of a homosexual was a guy who act feminine like i would be able to look at him and tell um when i got to prison that changed like it would be the most masculine, aggressive alpha male who indulged. You know what I mean? They they were the manipulators. A few years into you being there, I got a letter. And it was short, just saying you were okay. And then you didn't blame me for being there. 
for folks who are listening, we, we, we haven't really talked about this. I think we talked just briefly before we started about what mm-hmm. we could talk about. And I was so blown away by it because in my mind, you think you were so young. And as people are hearing you, you have an awareness of the world and self that I got to see getting to know you, getting ready for trial. Um, and no one in my years of practicing law had ever sent me a letter like that. And I didn't know what to quite do with it because there are all these parameters. You were going through appeals and you switch lawyers during that. Uh-huh. But I was like, wow, he's, he's different. It meant a lot to me because as a criminal defense lawyer, you, not besides that you lose and you're always going to lose sometimes, it's just impossible, but that you're dealing with a person and you feel bad, like you've done something wrong and that you shouldn't be there. And so to hear that from you meant a lot. And it stayed with me to the point where you then let me know that you had made it to a transition center Uh in Atlanta. And if you want to tell our listeners what the transition center was after you now sent all these years at all these facilities. Well, the, uh, the transitional center, for those who are at the end of their sentence, they get an opportunity to work and save money. It's usually about nine months to a year before your release date. So when I got to the transitional center, like I said, I was all thinking ahead. So I, I actually called you. My reason for calling you was more of for you to help me, like, find a job. You know, I was like in a transitional center. And I have the slightest idea of what I need to do to find employment. So I was basically calling you to ask you to help me find employment. And then I came to see you. You came, you came, and, you came to see me. And it turns out that you were in walking distance to my office. Right. As fate had it. And um, I left and I remember going back to my office. I had um, several lawyers and staff mm-hmm. working for me. And I said... Um, I don't know how to tell you all this, but I'm about to hire somebody and I want you all to be comfortable because he's in custody. And I realize that, you know, we do criminal work and civil work and we do all kinds of things. We have all people coming in, but we don't normally have the person while they're incarcerated come Mm. work. But you did. And everybody was accepting of it and felt comfortable. And um, you walked to the office and um, that was your coming to the office was Besides the fact that I, I think the world of you, and I was happy to have you there. And doing this work all these years, I didn't notice the things that happened when you came. About, number one, from the time you had been arrested to the time you had gotten out, the internet had occurred and computers had occurred. And you, you had not, you had never been on a computer and <laughs> didn't know. I mean, we were doing everything already, not as much as we do now, but we were using the computers and the internet on a regular basis and you looked at it like you'd never seen such a thing. Yeah. Uh, so cell phones too. Yep. Cell phones happened. You know, the other thing I remember was one, that first day I took you, so um, we had a very funky, it was in an old dairy area it was, yeah. um, and it had been renovated, super urban cool. And uh, we, and I collect a lot of art and there was art all over the place and, uh-huh. We walked out back, and I said, how is it today? And you looked at me, and you said, there's so much color here. Yeah. My environment had been so drab, nothing but concrete and buffed floors. 
so that that really you know that was a real observation that i made something else too you asked me what i wanted to eat you're like what do you what do you want to eat and i said i think i said subway and then you did that famous like bj cackle you're like subway <laughs> you don't want a steak and then and then you, you gave you gave the other assistant like your credit card and you were like go get him something to eat and then you were laughing like that the first meal out of prison in, a, in an area i want a subway there you go we may, they may have new marketing opportunities but yeah. you know and then i remember that i we were on a break and um i had a tangerine and i peeled it and we shared it yeah. and you took i i literally i will never forget your face because you just took a bite and it was like it was the greatest thing ever and you're like we didn't have fresh fruit yeah it was it was delicious. One of the things you forgot about, like wow. Wow. Yeah. As you go through that time period, and you were in the office with everybody, and then and then it was you were done with the transition center, and then you were really getting out for real. Mm-hmm. Um, you were still sleeping at a locked facility. It was certainly looser than it had been before. Right. But what was the transition to really going back home? You mean like once I was released from the transition right. center? Right. Right. As you can imagine. 10 years I never I never had any relationship with a woman so I think the biggest was interpersonal relationships with women like I think there was a lot about me that had matured and with the um you know with technology and stuff like that that was you know pretty easy to to grasp but I was literally 10 years behind in you know interpersonal relationships so I was 30 at the time so any you know, woman in my uh, age group, like I didn't know, you know how to talk to them or how, how to really engage. It was really, really awkward. And what made it even more awkward is you were anxious, being anxious and then not having that, like the social grace to know how to talk to a woman was just very difficult. How do you feel now? You know, so you're 40 now. Yes. This started when you were 20. And mm-hmm. there are things that you can't do. Right. Um, you're a convicted felon. It's not cleared from your record. No. You can't vote. You can't pass a background check at a regular company in any way whatsoever. Right. So I guess, one, how do you deal with that? And then the secondary part is it, do you have any opinions now about what we do as a society that something you did when you were young will stay with you to the day you die. Well, I definitely have an opinion about that, but I'm also very, you know, objective. So specifically speaking about employment, I have faced that many times. Uh, There was a uh, community rec center. They had a, um, like a little fitness facility. You know, I could, you do personal training, like the people at the rec center, you could, you know, solicit your personal training services there. But in order to be approved as a trainer there, you had to pass a background check. So I submitted the background check. And obviously, you know, I can't, it came back. I was a convicted felon. And they said there was, there was nothing they could do to allow me to, to, you know, train people there. And that was my first encounter. And it was extremely devastating because I had no intention of breaking the law or I just wanted to make a living for myself and I even told the guy I was like hey man like you know what would you do in my situation like I'm trying to earn an honest living and you're telling me that I can't 
because my you know felony conviction and I could kind of hear I can hear the sympathy in the guy's voice you know he was like you know I know man he's like I know but you know it's out of my hands there's nothing I can do about it so I feel that there should be a little common sense involved. Maybe like a review board to really review what happened to determine at some point, at some time, right? you're not unavailable. Yeah. Because no, no matter what, I've heard the excuse, you know, like, well, what am I supposed to do if I can't get a job and work legitimately? I'm going to sell drugs or do something illegal. That was never the, the case for me. I, I never, you know. You've made it work. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, made, I made it work. But I do think that's kind of legitimate argument, you know what I mean? Like some people are just, you know, they may not have criminals. your intelligence. There are people out here who who want to, you know, start a life and be a productive member of society and you, there are some people that are really stunting their growth and development by not giving them an opportunity. Jake, have you noticed how this what what you've endured has changed you maybe in some little ways? I would definitely say patience. I see people get agitated and angry about certain things. And, um, you know, if you're at a restaurant and they get your order wrong, I see people get so agitated and, like, snap at their server. And I'm like, hey, chill out, man. <laughs> like, it's, it's going to be okay. So I would definitely say I have an infinite amount of patience. That has definitely given me perspective about, you know, gratitude well, I appreciate you giving everyone listening an opportunity to hear something that's real and not just the movie version. Right. And as we've been here, as everybody knows, we always are sipping a cup of tea, and I choose the tea for our guests. And we had a lemon ginger tea that's supposedly for reviving. And when I think of you, I do think of reviving because I met you at 20. I've seen you along the way. I see you here and there now. And you have done nothing but take something very difficult and revived and thrived. And maybe that's hope, too, for other people who have find themselves in the same position. And, you know, there's so many things that can drag you down. But you have had a laser focus, as you mentioned, with some downsides, (laughs) but that you were not going to not succeed. So this has been very special. This is probably, I'm not going to cry on the radio, (laughs) but I'm going to give you a big hug when we're done. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.